Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. I know there are a number of people here visiting. You're very welcome. And I recognize a few who have called in this evening. It's good to see you. A question. If someone dies, will they live again? That's uh, that's actually a question that one well-known Old Testament character called Job asked as part of a conversation that he had with three friends. But as well as being a question that you find in the Bible, it's also a question people have been asking for years, and they still do. Is there life after death? And if there is, what's it going to be like? And over the the past three months, we have been exploring what we as a church believe about a whole range of life-defining subjects, although to describe some of these as subjects doesn't seem quite right. What do we believe about Scripture, about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the atonement, about justification by faith? And then last week we looked at what we believe about the second coming tonight. As Alison has said, we're going to concentrate on two life after death issues, heaven and hell. But before we uh, mention or look at those, I want to refer to a couple of other related Issues. One statistic that we can all agree on, I know I've referred to this before, is that one out of one people die. And the Bible is, is reasonably explicit on what happens next. We're all going to. So what happens after that? Hebrews 9:27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So life as we know it will come to a conclusion the moment we stop breathing. But death is clearly not the end. After we die comes judgment. But when? When does that happen? Well, the Bible makes it clear, and we looked at this last week, That this will happen after the second coming, the second advent, the second arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back again to judge. It's one of the key reasons he is returning. He will judge the living as in all those who are still alive when that phenomenal event does take place. And he will judge the dead, all those who have died before that takes place. But that raises a question for many people. Well, what happens in the intervening stage for those who have died? I see a number of you smiling. The periods between someone dying and the judgment, that intervening period, what actually happens? It's a great question. And and a lot of ink has been spilt on the nature of the so-called intermediate state. Tonight's talk is not about that, I'm glad to say. But let me say something rather than avoid the issue altogether. And all I really want to do is just highlight three biblical texts. The first is Luke 23:43, well known. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he turns around to one of the thieves and he says, Today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Second, Philippians 1:23, Paul finds himself in prison, probably Rome. He's beginning to sense that his own death is imminent. And as he wrestles with wanting to stay alive in order to help some people, he also expresses this desire. He says, I 
desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. And the third text is 2 Corinthians 5.8, where Paul expresses again his preference that he would like to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so based on God's word, we as Christians have believed that whenever a child of God dies, they immediately go to be with Christ. But although that is better, that's not the full reality. There is still a new day to come whenever after the final judgment, children of God will enjoy an increased depth and level to their experience of the presence of Jesus. But more about that later. So death is not the end. Because all of us still have to face judgment. And that includes Christians. Although not in connection to their relationship with God in Christ, but specifically in respect to their stewardship and use of gifts and talents and opportunities and responsibilities that they have been given in this life. So how we live, and we know this, but how we live as Christians really does matter, and on that we will be judged. Again, don't want to say much more about that. But if there is life after death in order to face judgment, Well, the obvious next question to ask and explore is, well, what happens after judgment? And in a Christian worldview, a Christian belief system, we now face two ultimate and final possibilities, heaven or hell. And I'm sure we're all familiar with these lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. But, despite that, the Bible clearly teaches, and we believe that heaven and hell are real, and they are the only two post-judgment possibilities facing every human being. Imagining they, and specifically hell, don't exist is appealing. But it requires taking a life after death or a life before death risk of epic proportions to imagine that but what do we believe about these two possibilities well let's start with hell which has always been and remains a difficult and a sensitive subject it's a stumbling block and it's a profoundly disturbing prospect And right up front, I need to say that I don't enjoy and I certainly don't take any pleasure in talking about hell. And as one writer has observed, any who have a right to discuss hell wish they did not have to. Because it's fair to say that this is quite possibly the most unpalatable subject in Christian theology. And yet despite that, I simply must, or we simply must, talk about it for two reasons. There are more reasons why we must, but here are two key reasons. One, because Scripture witnesses to the reality of hell. And secondly, because Jesus himself talked about it more than anyone else in Scripture. And that in itself is is a massive problem for some people when it comes to Jesus. For example, the leading British philosopher of the last century, or one leading British philosopher of the last century, Bertrand Russell, held a view that 
for all that might be said positively about the teaching and character of Jesus Christ, it was overshadowed on the negative side by his belief in hell. And as you read the Gospels, you quickly discover that Jesus did talk a lot about hell. And therefore we as as an evangelical church, which by definition is passionately committed to scripture and to Jesus in terms of where we turn for authority, we absolutely must discuss this, despite how unpopular or how uncomfortable we think it is. Granted, what we teach and how we convey that is the challenge that faces us in a 21st century context. So what did Jesus say? And what do we believe? Now, as we get into this, and, and I know it's already 25 date, and we still have to meet around the Lord's table, you do realize, and I know I've said it so many times, you come to a subject like this. I'm only skimming. I really am. So I'm going to leave so much unsaid. And in some ways I apologize for that. But if I was attempting to summarize, and this is dangerous, but if I was attempting to summarize the teaching of Jesus, here it is in a sentence. Hell's real. And hell is terrible. The language that Jesus uses and the images that he grabs to describe and talk about this faith that awaits those rejected by God in the day of judgment should, and I know does send a chill down our spines. Hell, here's just some of the language. Hell is a place where the fire never goes out. Mark 9. It's a place of darkness, a place of outer darkness. It's a place of weeping, of wailing, of gnashing of teeth. Other biblical writers describe it as a lake of fire or as being shut out from the presence of God, which in itself is an unimaginable horror. And what we must appreciate is that when it comes to describing hell, we're severely limited in our understanding because we're dealing with realities that are so beyond our frame of reference. They are so completely otherworldly. Pictures and images and metaphors are all we have, but they are God-given. And although they don't and they cannot tell us everything, they tell us something. In fact, they tell us enough. And as you engage with the teaching of Jesus and the language he uses, the core truth, the core reality, fact, conclusion that you reach, that you encounter, is that hell is awful by any measure and there is no more terrible prospect conceivable than of being consigned to hell and therefore it is our responsibility our God given calling to share the good news that God so loved this world we've already been thinking about that we will think about that that God so loved this world that he gave Jesus so that whoever does believe in him does not have to perish in this hell. So we believe in hell. But I echo these words of C.S. Lewis. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. Now before we leave this and take a look at what we believe about heaven, 
I realize that for a number of people listening to me up to this point, whether here or whether they will listen on a recording, they'll have noticed that I haven't mentioned one crucial and increasingly controversial aspect of the reality of hell. And that is its duration. How long will hell last? And in some ways, as as I was reflecting on this, and if I'm honest, I was going to avoid referring to this dimension. And yet, if I'm going to share what we as a church believe, and what our statement of faith declares, plus if I'm going to maintain my integrity in talking about this subject, then I've got to deal with this. And in a series on doctrine, which is what this is, this is not a sermon on hell or a sermon on heaven. This is a series of talks on what we believe. I feel it is important to draw attention to the difficulty that many have with hell's duration and how other Christians and many, including many contemporary evangelical Christians, have responded to this. But before I I say anything further, it's absolutely essential to make one point crystal clear. That's central to all the views there are on hell. And the nature of hell. Central to all of them is the idea that hell is something to be avoided at all costs. Some people may say they do say that certain views are more severe than others and they are. But none of them makes hell into something that is not a truly awful prospect. So, okay, how long will hell last? Well, on the surface, the words of Jesus appear to answer the question quite straightforwardly. In hell, he says, the fire never goes out, Mark 9, 44. The fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 48. Matthew 3, Luke 3, refer to unquenchable fire. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Later on in the same chapter, he says those on his left will go away to eternal punishment. Elsewhere in scripture, Paul writes about some being punished with everlasting destruction. Jude speaks of eternal fire and the blackest darkness reserved forever. And in Revelation, we read of the smoke of people's torment rising forever and ever, and we could go on. And the imagery of these texts is very striking. And therefore, in light of these references and others, the vast majority of Christians have, although not without a certain amount and degree of internal struggle, but the vast majority of Christians have, down through the centuries, come to believe and accept that the Bible teaches about the endless duration of hell. That it is a place or a state of everlasting punishment. And that, if you like, is the traditional view of hell. But there is another increasingly popular position. And it's not that these two options are the only ones that exist, but they are definitely seen as the classic position, so to speak. And the second one is conditionalism. And it argues that hell is it's not everlasting as far as the conscious experience of those consigned there is concerned. This position believes that those who are appointed to hell will suffer 
a period of conscious pain. But at some point, although unknown, those in hell will be annihilated and will then cease to exist. And there are two key reasons for this view. And and again, I know I'm not doing all of this justice. But there are two key reasons for this view. First is, those who ascribe to it believe that eternal life is a gift of God. And only those who have come to Christ, only those who have believed in him, to quote John 3.16 again, will receive everlasting life. Anyone who rejects the gospel forfeits the gift of immortality. Secondly, the idea of everlasting punishment is, for those who hold this view, impossible to reconcile with a God of love and a God of justice and a God who has won victory at the cross. As you can understand, this perspective is appealing and the issues raised and are being raised do give cause for careful and prayerful consideration. But as far as this church's statement of faith is concerned, and as far as the vast majority of evangelical Christians are concerned, the case for revising the traditional understanding concerning the meaning of the various texts regarding the duration of hell falls short of compelling argument. And if anyone does want to explore these issues in greater depth, Please do speak to me afterwards and I can recommend a couple of helpful books that that go into this in lots more detail. But please don't forget what I said a moment ago. Irrespective of what position you as a Christian hold on the subject of hell, it does not and should not diminish the awfulness of being consigned there. Okay, let me turn to the second possibility, the much easier one to talk about. And that is the promise and the hope of heaven to come. Now I know there is a real sense that heaven has appeared amongst us. That we we do have and we can get a taste of heaven now. But what I want to, to look at or attempt to look at is what will the heaven to come be like? What will the new heaven and the new earth that we are looking forward to What will that actually be like? And again, we're so limited in our understanding. The pictures, the imagery that the Bible uses for heaven or of heaven are multiple and they're diverse. And therefore, we do struggle again to describe what heaven is is like. And unfortunately for many people, whenever they think of heaven, they think of white and of singing and of Philadelphia cheese. And we have such a reduced and a restricted view of paradise. And in a talk, never mind the closing thoughts of one talk, you can never do the prospect of the reality of heaven justice. But what I I would like to do, just before I hand back to Alison, is not so much paint a picture of what heaven will be like. It's more sketch an outline of what the heavenly life will be like. That life for all eternity that has been promised to those who are in Christ, for those who have believed, for those who have placed their trust in Jesus. What will that life be like? Well, the first is that the heavenly life will be a perfect life. We're going to discover, we're going to enjoy forever the fullness 
of life we were originally designed for. And nothing is going to disrupt that. Nothing's going to interrupt that. Revelation 21 describes it like this. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. And even that in itself. God living with no barriers, no veils. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. All the things that intrude on life now, all the things that interfere in a negative way with life will be gone. Perfection. As God intended. Secondly, the heavenly life will be an embodied life. Now thankfully, we don't get this one back again. We are all going to receive a brand new resurrection body. What will that look like? And I know that is relatively difficult for us to imagine and therefore one writer says this, perhaps the great obstacle to a true appreciation of heaven, and I think this is so true, a true appreciation of heaven is our inability to imagine our bodies there. Though we believe in the resurrection of the body and we do, Heaven still brings to mind a realm which is immaterial, not physical in any sense. And I reckon that's a fair comment. And part of our journey in coming to terms with this is embracing the Bible's promise in both Testaments of a new heaven and a new earth. It's not just about something somewhere way out beyond the blue. It's about living and existing in a restored and a renewed earth. That writer goes on to say, heaven and earth will come together in wonderful unity. I think we, the church, have sometimes been guilty of thinking of eternity in heaven as floating off into space as some disembodied spirits. But the Bible doesn't talk of the new heaven and the new earth in those terms. The Bible tells of a cosmic redemption, a restoration of all creation. God's not going to destroy the world and save us from it. Rather, God's going to renew the world and give us new bodies to live there in this new heaven and new earth. It's a perfect life. It's an embodied life. And thirdly, the heavenly life is a communal life. We will connect with and relate to one another perfectly. No tensions. No hidden agendas. No ulterior motives. No relational family breakdown. No divisions. No sectarianism. No bigotry. No racism. All gone forever. The new heaven and the new earth holds out undreamed of possibilities at the level of our social relationships. And here's a question people often ask. Will we know one another in heaven? It's a good question. Augustine once addressed that question in a sermon. And I love this. Do you think that you will recognize me because you know me? And that you will not recognize my father whom you do not know? You will know everybody. It's brilliant. And in bringing these three ideas together, this idea of this perfect, this embodied, this communal life, I think 
a quote from Tim Keller's book, which I know one of you did give me uh, to borrow, and I need to give it back to you. But his book, The Prodigal God, it just sums this up brilliantly. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal form of consciousness. We will not float through the air, but rather we'll eat, we'll embrace, we'll sing, we'll dance in the kingdom of God in degrees of power and glory and joy that we can't at present imagine. Jesus will make the world our perfect home again. We will no longer be living east of Eden, always wandering and never arriving. We will come and the Father will meet us and embrace us and we will be brought into the feast. And finally, the heavenly life will be a God-centered life. And this for many is the supreme feature of this life that's to come. And in some ways everything else could be considered secondary. Because in that context, in that place, we'll see as we've never seen before. We'll see him as he is. And we'll truly know then what it means to be lost in wonder, love and praise. And last week, as I closed, I said that one of the responses to the doctrine of the second coming is we need to be prepared. And Alison's already brought this out. But for me, one of the incredible thoughts about the future that awaits us in the new heaven and new earth is that Jesus is currently preparing for our arrival. We need to prepare. But Jesus is preparing for us. And so that rather than imagine there is no heaven, I'd much rather imagine, despite how difficult it actually is, what is this prepared place, this perfect, embodied, communal, and God-centered life going to be like? And maybe paradise is the only word. Just a final thought. Back in the 60s, there was a band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, long before my time. But in 1969, they reached number two. with a song called And When I Die here's a line from it I can swear there ain't no heaven and pray there ain't no hell but I'll never know by living only my dying will tell and that is a sobering thought and yet there's more than a hint of truth to those lyrics because we believe to coin an old phrase, we believe there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Alice.